Alan Donegan is the founder of Rebel Business School, a world-traveling early retiree and possibly the biggest Marvel fanboy ever. We're talking Legos, T-shirts, socks, underwear, lunchboxes. Alan has it all. In fact, I think Alan single-handedly kept Disney afloat for this entire pandemic by possibly buying every Marvel product on Earth. Alan, you better be affiliating for all this stuff. So we first met Alan in UK at a financial retreat called Chautauqua. He was running the event with his wife Katie, and what stood out at the time was his message. He wanted to help people start businesses with no money, and the passion he had for this message. It's this passion that he's turned into a career, a successful business, and now a podcast. Today, we thought we'd dive into where this passion came from. What is Alan's origin story? Did Marvel inspire him? What was the origin story that inspired him to save people from getting into debt? We are Christian Bryce from Millennium Revolution, and we're going to find out right now. The extraordinary belongs to those that created. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun, and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to the Rebel Entrepreneur. As with everything with you, Alan, everything begins and ends with Marvel. So let's start here and ask. I want to know who is your favorite Marvel superhero and why. And to the readers that are only listening to the audio, of this he's literally wearing a Marvel T-shirt right now. What is that? Captain Marvel. Yeah, the mighty Captain Marvel. Actually, like my favorite character, the one I most identify with is Captain America, because before he got his superpowers, he was weedy, tiny, bullied, and it didn't matter. He just stood up to people. And then when he got his superpowers, it didn't change him. He still stood up for people. He still like fought against things that were wrong. He stood up for people. And I feel as though I have my superpowers now in terms of how I can present, how I can communicate how I can help people. But it wasn't always that way. I was the kid that got bullied at school and it nearly broke me, but it didn't. So I guess I feel most aligned with him because he actually goes out of his way to help other people. Right, right. And now after actually watching some of the the earlier Marvel movies, you know, the scene where Steve Rogers like jumps on a grenade to like save everybody and this kind of stuff. And this is before he got his superpowers. And that's why they gave him the serum in the first place. I was like, okay, now I can see the appeal of this character. Because I thought, like, I think Captain America, and I just think, oh, he just goes around and blows things up for no reason, right? But no, this is, this is actually more to this character than that. Now, we're going to come back to that, to the Marvel thing, because I think it really encapsulates who you are as a character as well. But let's go back even further and tell us, what was the first time you did anything entrepreneurial? Or when was the first time you did anything entrepreneurial? Ooh, First thing ever entrepreneurial was at school. There was class, I can't remember what it was, home economics or something like that, where it was about learning how to cook and budget and things. And they said us this thing of make some food and then sell it. And this is like literally the best business model ever. My mum paid for the ingredients. Then we would make this Mars bar cake together. I'd go into school and sell it and I would get to keep all the profits. Ooh, that is a good business model. It's an amazing business model. There was no cost because mum paid for all the heat, light, power and ingredients. Like it's not possible in the future, but that was my first ever experience of making something. And I do remember it, like the buzz of 
having coins in my hands from the other kids. And I also got to eat a lot of the Mars bar cake. It is addictive. <laughs> well, then you know you did a good job. You also were selling sportswear at some point, right? Yeah, I think that was actually one of the turning points that I didn't enjoy. My dad didn't really have any money. He was struggling financially, but he had his sportswear business. And I think he couldn't afford to give me pocket money or money to get in and out of college. So what he said to me is, I can't really give you money, but I can give you the opportunity to earn. So he said, you can take anything from the sportswear store. I'll give you like the base price and help you decide what to sell it for. And then you can go into school and sell T-shirts, shorts, trainers and stuff to your friends. And if you make a profit, you get to keep it. So I just took some sportswear, went into school and college and sold it. And eventually I would just walk around with this giant bag on my side full of trainers and stuff. And like, does anyone need any shorts? Anyone need t-shirts? And I sold all this stuff. And some months at school, I made three times what the money was that I made in my first job through that opportunity. And I was like, wow, I can actually, I can make money. I don't need handouts. I don't need that. I could buy my own pizza and Lego. That's really fascinating. I just want to highlight the difference between our, our, our backgrounds, because you mentioned your dad being an entrepreneur and some of that was the inspiration. And then for me, it's the exact opposite because my dad was like, you don't have the business gene. You are never going to be an entrepreneur. And of course, after I went to one of your business school, like Rebel Business School coaching courses, I, I realized that that is not the case. You don't need a business gene. So it's quite fascinating that a lot of this came from your dad. So can you just tell us a little bit about this sporting goods store that he owned and what kind of entrepreneur was he and what was his life philosophy and what was his feelings about entrepreneurship? He was fascinating. I think he worked for the electricity board for many years with his brother before he started his own business. And exactly, he was the opposite of his brother because his brother worked for the electricity board for his entire career and then retired there. Whereas my dad worked for a few years and then started doing things and he started selling sportswear. And I think he just started selling stuff. And then he and mum got into selling sportswear. They opened one sportswear store in a town called Fleet in Hampshire. And they started selling stuff. They started selling football kits to the football teams, soccer teams, and they were trading and buying. And my dad, in essence, was a wheeler dealer. He would buy something cheap and sell it for a profit. And this one store in Fleet started to do well. He amalgamated with another group of stores and took on some partners. And at the height of that first business, he had 20 sportswear stores. He had three giant warehouses. He was the biggest supplier of sportswear in the UK at that point in the sort of, so that there's sort of two ways sportswear gets done. You get the main sportswear stores that they buy directly from Nike and Adidas and Puma, and they buy that stuff and then sell it direct to customers. Then there's a bunch of stuff that either the stores haven't been able to sell by the end of the season, or the main organizations, Nike, Adidas, Puma, Dunlop, all those people have not been able to sell by the end of the season. And my dad would buy everything they haven't been able to sell at hugely discount rates. And then he would resell it to market stall traders in his own shops. Like he built an incredible business wheeling and dealing. Wow, that's fascinating. So in your opinion, what do you think was his best skill that made him such a successful entrepreneur? What did he do right? What did he do right? 
he was incredible at seeing opportunity where other people didn't. Like he would just see these opportunities and I I would look at some of these opportunities and go, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> why are you doing this? I don't understand it. But he would see this opportunity and go for it. And then he was so incredibly charismatic. He could get people to believe anything. And I think that was both his superpower and his downfall because he would get people to believe things. He would get himself to believe it, then get other people to believe it. And it wasn't always true. And that was one of his downfalls. We know that he made also a lot of mistakes as an entrepreneur, and he ended up actually going bankrupt multiple times. The first time he went bankrupt, what happened there? So I think it was Black Friday, the crash of the late 80s. The economy tanked, everything went bad. People stopped spending money in retail and they stopped spending money on luxuries. And if you're going to cut money somewhere, it's going to be sportswear. In a recession, not people aren't buying expensive trainers, but they're just not doing that. So his business crashed overnight. People stopped spending money in his stores. He had 20 stores, a few hundred staff, huge overheads, and he couldn't afford to pay the overheads because the money switched off in an instant. And then all of a sudden, he's got these incredible bills, no income, and he's going, how do I do this? How do I do it? And he had to liquidate the stock. He had to liquidate everything to try and pay for what he could. And the main amount of money he owed was to one bank. And he owed £3.6 million, £5 million US dollars. I, I'd have no idea what that is in Canadian. It's like a million million, isn't it? Yeah, it's just um, basically infinite money. Infinite amount of money. Infinite Canadian dineros. <laughs> so, so he owed all this money to this one main bank. We know he owed money elsewhere, but that one main bank had a document that was signed by my mum and had the house secured against it. So the house was not worth anywhere near that amount of money. And yeah, that started a cascade of problems and issues that lasted decades and mainly surrounding the family home and where we all lived. Did you know that the house was up, uh, was set up as a collateral for his business? Not at that time. I was like 11, 12, something around that age. And all I could see was there was problems and financially things were bad. And as we got a little bit older, like it happened again, we ended up doing car boot sales or garage sales. And that was like, we were selling at the weekend for mum to have money to be able to buy food. Wow. So things had got bad, but I didn't really like, I didn't know. I only really found out what happened later on when we got into the court case and mum brought down all the paperwork from the loft and I'm reading all these old documents and the bankers sent me their court documents and they're trying to take our house from us. And actually, I pieced a lot of this together from random files, paperwork and documents from the loft and from banks and writing to people. And yeah, you kind of piece it together after the fact. Wow, that sounds terrifying. So at one point, you, you found out with your mom that you were about to become homeless, that you were about to lose your family home. Potentially, yeah. How did that feel? Like paint us a picture of what that felt like when you, the moment you found out. It had been hanging over my parents for a long time, maybe a decade, maybe more. And eventually I find out and I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about it. I don't really know where we're going to live, but there's not a lot I can do about it. You know, you're fairly young. You don't really know what you're doing. And even early 20s, I'm still a bit too young 
I'm still a bit, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm green around the edges. I know that we may or may not live there in the future. And then you're just trying to focus on passing your exams and doing what you do and getting a job and stuff like that. I don't think it really came real until you get that letter that says, we are taking you to court. Here is the court date. Turn up on this day. We are, you know, you will be evicted. Wow. So when everybody else was getting drunk and partying at in college and uni, you were actually fighting the bank and trying to get your family home back. And even though you weren't a lawyer. So how did you know you even had a case and how did you even prepare for this? My mum said certain things that felt wrong. So my dad had forced her to sign a document that said, Hazel Donegan, that's my mum, will stand surety or guarantor for all debts, future, past and present for Kevin Donegan. That's my dad. And my dad made her sign that document so by saying, like, you either stand for my debts <laughs> or there's no future, there's no marriage, there's no life. And that you're not allowed to do that. Like, independent people should have independent advice and you shouldn't force your wife to put her half of the house up. And I just, it felt wrong. I started ringing solicitors. And you know, they kind of give you that, solicitors or lawyers, they give you that first 30 minutes free. I think I rung pretty much everyone in the phone book and had the first 30 minutes free time and time again, until I started to understand what questions to ask. They would say to me, that sounds like this specific court case. And then I'd go to Google and I would Google it and I'd find the original transcript of the Lords discussing it in the top court in the UK, the Crown Court, and I would read it. And I'd literally read the court cases, the transcripts of these court cases to try and work out if my mum had a case, if the bank was doing wrong. And I slowly put together a case that was based on three points of law that I'd researched and I was able to write. In this court case of the year 1980, whatever it was, this Lord said this, and this applies to my case. Here's exactly why. And then we kind of took it with us to the court case. But I don't think I truly started until we lost the house. That was the real catalyst. Right, right. So what was it like to walk into that courtroom and, you're, you know, the stakes could not be higher here. Your family home is on the line. You're basically an amateur lawyer that has that, that spent a lot of time on Google. <laughs> and you're going I'm just up a against, kid. <laughs> yeah, you're just a kid. You're like 20 at the time. And then you're going up against a, I guess, a lawyer for the bank, right, at the time? Yes, it was the lawyer from the bank, and he had the best name ever. I always enjoyed this. His name was Mr. Bond from the bank. <laughs> I cannot believe wow, that that's someone's make real this stuff name. Up. Yeah. You cannot make this stuff up. So just to paint the sort of picture of exactly what happened that first time, it was in Basingstoke County Court. So imagine a grey concrete council building kind of imposing. You go into a horrible waiting room you get called into a small courtroom. And at that time, it was just the the bank solicitor, the judge. They all thought it was just a formality and me, my brother, and my mum. And the judge gives us our chance to say something. I say it's based on these three points. One of the particular points was there's something called the statute of limitations, which if you have a debt, you have so many years after the debt to follow up. If you don't follow up inside, I think it's 10 to 12 years, then that debt is written off because you can't just 
ad finitum keep someone under debt and not chase it. And I said, it's been this long since the bank contacted us. I think they're out of the statute of limitations. And the judge said to me, the statute of limitations does not apply to mortgages. I said it did. We argued. He had a gavel. (laughs) He said, I'm ruling against you. He smashed it down and said, you have one month to get out of the house. I'm handing it back to the bank. Which at that point, my mum burst into tears crying. It melted down. I was shouting at the judge. I was angry. And that was it. We kind of got wheeled out of the courtroom and they took our house. And that's one of the most painful moments I've ever been through, ever. I mean, there was also this very dramatic moment in which the bank solicitor, he, he turned to you and says, You're, you guys are arguing. And, and he goes, I'm sorry, I have to do this. And he pulled a letter out of his briefcase. Do you remember what was on that letter? Yeah, so that was actually sort of in the appeal. So they won the first thing. And then I was like, I'm not accepting this, judge. And this might show you why I have a healthy disdain for authority because this judge said (laughs) this point of law does not apply to mortgages and I knew it did and I appealed and I do not trust them. They do not always know what they're talking about. I don't care whether they're judges, doctors, they're humans. They make mistakes, but they act like they're infallible. Right. Mm -hmm. So we took him to appeal. We got a higher judge in the system. We went to appeal and yeah, there was this moment where Mr. Bond he always like to say, uh, would the court mind if I use the collective noun of the Donegans for Hazel, Allen, and Roy to save time? <laughs> it was so formal. So he'd say the Donegans. And he said, I hate to do this to you. And he pulled out this letter, handed a copy to the judge, a copy to us so that we're reading it live in the courtroom. And that letter was a letter from my dad to the bank. And the basis of the letter was, if you can evict my family... I'll sell the house and split the proceeds with you. And he was trying to sell us out. He was trying to kick out his own family and split the proceeds with the bank so that he got some money. And we were never meant to see that letter. Like that was secret to the bank. But the point of him showing it at that point was it proves that Kevin, my dad, knew he owed money. Because otherwise, why would he be trying to do a deal if he didn't owe money? So it was actually a useful tool for him, but that threw us in court like you wouldn't believe. It also weakened our point of the statute of limitations because there had been communication between my dad and the bank during that period. Wow. So so how did this affect your relationship with your dad? (laughs) (laughs) Positive, negative. Uh, Yeah. Just a tad negative. Was it... (laughs) Was it an awkward Christmas afterwards? Was it an awkward Christmas? Well, we'd already fallen out. My mum ran a pub, which they had together. He'd come out of prison and come back to the pub. And if you want an example of just like unbelievable, he managed to persuade the judge. You know, you get tags, you get like the ankle bracelets So for so many months afterwards, you get to stay at home with the ankle bracelet, and it's kind of like your punishment. He managed to persuade the judge to tag him to the pub, not our home. So he had to be in the pub by five o'clock at night and couldn't leave until eight o'clock in the morning. And it's like, unbelievable. So he got himself tagged to the pub. He got a mistress. Mum found out about it. I threatened him and said, if you ever bring your mistress into the pub again, I will never talk to you again. And that did not go down well. It ended up in an argument 
that ended up in a big argument. And then the very next night, guess what he did to prove he could do whatever he wanted? He brought the mistress, didn't he? Yes, he brought the mistress into the pub. My mum happened to turn up to do the books at the end of the night. My dad was very drunk and he assaulted her. Oh, wow. And then you sort of fast forward to that court case. God, it sounds like my family has been in and out of court a lot. But he stood up and told the judge that it was my fault that he assaulted my mum because I had argued with him the day before. And of course, that didn't fly with the judge. Oh, no, God, no. He got prosecuted and community service and all that stuff. But that was the last time I ever spoke to him was when I threatened him and said, if you ever bring your mistress into the pub again, I'll never speak to you again. And I've never spoken to him again. That's That's been it. Is your dad a bully? I feel like he is, or he was, when I knew him. Yeah, when he couldn't control me through words, he would physically push me around or chase me, or when he didn't get the right answer, he would push in other ways. Yes. Wow. Okay, so that's a pretty definitive wow. answer this, there. This explains why you like Captain America. Yeah, why, this really kind of goes Why you to... really hate bullies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did that trial end? So just going back a little bit. So I, I actually didn't know that you, uh, that you actually lost the first round and then had to go to appeal. So what ended up happening with that trial? So basically, you, you have a court case to win the right to appeal. So before you even get to appeal, you have to win the right to appeal. And you basically have to present enough information to show it. And like we go in there, the judge was amazing. And like our opening statement was, last judge didn't listen to us. I think he's wrong. And this judge said, yep, got it. I am here to listen to you. You now have your chance. Tell me. And he was incredible. And I told him, I ran him through the stuff and I was like, here's this document. Here's this document. He's like, oh, that's interesting. I've never seen that. And I said, well, I sent it to you. I sent it to the court system. And I was quite, I think I was agitated because, well, it's fairly obvious why. And I remember him saying to me, you've got to think of the court cupboards as if they're Narnia. Sometimes things go in, but they never come out. And that's okay. Just give it to me now. So I'm handing over these documents to prove our point, to show what we're doing. And I think we had two or three sessions. They were a couple of hours long and it was very intense. And then he went off to deliberate and we won the right to appeal. Oh, wow. And then at that point, basically what he is saying is you have a strong enough case for it to be deliberated properly. And based on all of this work you've done, we think you've actually got a chance of winning this. So what that says to the bank is you've got a chance of losing this. You might lose this case. You might have problems. And to go to court is an expensive, costly thing for the bank. We were arguing it ourselves. Like it was just literally my mum and my brother and me stood up in court. We couldn't afford solicitors. We couldn't afford lawyers. So we did it ourselves. So we did, I didn't care. I was like, I will fight these people till the ends of the earth. I do not care. I am taking you down. Nothing matters. And I put everything into it. And yet that would have cost them a lot of money. And in the end, we negotiated and it never went to the appeal. They settled before we got to the appeal. Wow. And we settled on an amount. I don't, I'd have to read the paperwork to know if I'm meant to share the figures. I'm not going to, like, it was a small amount we settled for and we won enough money back to buy mum another house. Wow. So my mum came out of this with a house and that was the whole goal was to have somewhere for my mum to live and somewhere 
Like she, she had nothing for a future. My dad had legged it with everything and left her with nothing. So that was the whole mission. So yeah, eventually they settled. We actually had to hire a solicitor at the end to draw up the paperwork for that little bit. But that was minuscule amounts compared to what it would be arguing court. And yeah, they settled with us. We got the money back. We bought mum another house. There's one minor frustration, which was the bank would never agree that that was all of my dad's debts. And actually, we know he owed money to other people. But for a long time, we just didn't know if anyone else would come out of the woodwork and say, you owe us money. We just didn't know what was coming for us and what problems he'd created before he disappeared. Yes, it was the most positive outcome that we were able to get some money back for my mum to be able to buy a house and live. Wow. That's a crazy story. Moral of the story, huh? Don't like actually question authority, which is why you have rebel business school. It actually paid in this case to not just go with the first judge and just say whatever he says goes. Wow. Yeah. So you you famously loathe debt, like in any way, shape and form. It was, is it fair to say that this is that, that moment when that happened? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I never... I never want to risk the family home based on debt. I never want to, I don't want anyone else to ever go through the pain that I went through. I mean, it sounds painful on the podcast, but I don't think you can really understand until you've stood there in court trying to defend your family home, how ripping that is. And that moment when they take it away from you, this is absolutely 100% where my hate of debt comes from. And I don't think it's needed in most instances for most people. Like if you're buying a house, you need to get a mortgage. That's different. But if you're borrowing to start a business, you do not need to do that. Going back to your, your dad, it wasn't even the first time that he went bankrupt. So you, you mentioned that there's all these things that happen with him being a successful businessman, but then there's a downside to it as well with him going bankrupt. How many times did he actually go bankrupt? I think technically he only went bankrupt once. I think he went into liquidation twice, and I think he was struck off the list of directors in the UK once. But I'm kind of piecing this together from random pieces of paperwork, stories from my mum. I was young when a lot of this happened. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's kind of like my recollection of it. It's difficult to know all the details because not all of the paperwork was in the loft. He never neatly filed things. One of his superpowers was if I don't write anything down, it didn't happen. And he was amazing <laughs> oh at not God. writing things down. That's uh, not a superpower as it is a lack of, <laughs> a, a, a lack of accountability. <laughs> you're, okay, you're, 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 your definition of superpower is very, very loose here. <laughs> you can get away with murder. It's like, that's not a superpower. That's just... <laughs> well, he did get away with a huge amount. He got away with a huge amount and I, I didn't like it. Yeah. So he, he went bankrupt once, went into liquidation twice, Alan, how many times have you gone bankrupt? Zero. I'm <laughs> never doing that. I've seen what it's like. I helped my mum go through it. I, I think when she did it, I was 21, 22, and I helped her through it. It's a year-long process. Uh-huh. It's not nice. Like, never do it. It's just not worth it. And that stays on your credit rating. It affects you in all sorts of ways. Yeah, so I've been through it several times, but never done it personally. Never going to, ever. Yeah, that's a good strategy. Now, that's a really interesting actual fact right there. Many people might have seen what happened to your dad and thought, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to get a job. I'm going to work for someone else. It's too dangerous and this kind of thing. Instead, you continue to embrace entrepreneurship. And now you teach people how to do that as well as a career. But you managed to kind of 
do it better than your dad. Like you managed to avoid the, the mistakes that your dad did. What gave you the confidence to be able to do that? Well, I guess it depends how you define better. My dad, at the height of his success, was unbelievably successful, like dwarfs anything I've ever achieved. But then it all crashed and burnt because it was built on debt and leverage and planning on future earnings. And it was built in a different way. What gave me the confidence to do it, I think, so there is a period in the middle of my life where I went off and got jobs. So it all crashed with dad and I went and got corporate jobs. I did do the job thing for some period before I realized I wasn't a very good employee. There wasn't the jobs I actually wanted to do. So I built my own. So I kind of had that experience. I had the entrepreneurial experience. I then struggled for years to build my own business and eventually figured out how to do it without debt. And by the time I figured out that, I've been through more entrepreneurial experience than you could imagine in different industries, different businesses. And that experience is what then I can share with other people. Look, if you do it this way, here's what might happen in the risks. Have you thought about these five alternate options that mean you don't have to go into debt and you can start for free? And then you run one course, people get buzzed, you get feedback that it's life-changing and you run two courses and then all of a sudden people are saying like, you've changed my life, you've helped me build businesses, you've helped me make money. And like by that stage, I am evangelical. You do not need debt to build a business. And I'm picking fights around the country with banks and traditional organizations going, you're doing it wrong. And I was evangelical. I was out there trying to take down startup loan schemes, fight them, because I thought they were fundamentally evil because they are putting people into debt to start a business when they don't need debt and they make profit out of doing it. So I thought they were fundamentally evil. So I was out there. I'm going to take down every startup loan scheme I can. I even invited one of the major ones, Virgin Startup Scheme. I invited them on this podcast. They declined me. I was up for a discussion over whether startup loans were a good thing. They didn't want to come on. I don't know why. Do you think that banks are bullies too? I think inherently big organizations can get to a stage where individuals get bullied. And I don't care what type of business it is. They'll just say things like, these are our processes. And that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's legal. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that that's their process. And I'm meant to accept what they say. I won't do that. We had this example on Rebel Finance School. This couple had a loan that was at 69% interest. 69% and they were paying interest. 69. They were right, paying more interest. 69. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Classy, honey, classy. That's what I'm here for, <laughs> classing the place up. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, 69% interest, and they were going to pay back more than they borrowed, which is actually illegal in the UK. Like, you cannot do that. And this company was just charging interest, and this couple didn't know they should argue with them. That organization was taking advantage of them. So I said to them, like, you need to go back to them and tell them, I think this is illegal, the amount you're charging me, and do something about it. They actually halved the interest rate on the first call, and now they've put a complaint in against them. People don't think to stand up to these organizations and these people. They just accept that the bank says this, the big company says this. They just accept it. And I just want to say to everyone out there, you do not have to accept being taken advantage of. You get to fight back and say, this is not acceptable. This is not the way I want my life to be. And 
if we all stand up to these organizations, they will change their policies and they change the way we act because we'll just move somewhere else and send them bankrupt by not spending any money with them. So, yeah, I do get very, very agitated and want to stand up for people against these organizations because they make up random rules, tell you that's the way it is because it's our process and then expect you just to accept whatever they hand out. Yes, always rebel. Rebel business school. It pays to rebel. <laughs> I want to try just to emphasize the fact that like the way you run a business is just so fundamentally different from the way your dad ran a business. Let's talk about Pop-Up. Pop-Up is the name of the business school that Alan ran before he renamed it Rebel Business School. And before this pandemic, how much debt did Pop-Up carry? Zero. 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 We've never had any debt. I- right. <laughs> None. I love how you actually, whenever you you say something, you actually put the action towards it. It's not just words. Because from our discussions, you told us a little bit about how well Rebel Business School weathered the storm during the pandemic. So how much cash did Rebel Business School have during this time? We had 12 to 14 months of basic expenses. Oh, wow. So if we never... In cash. In cash, sign a bank. If we never earned a penny, we'd last 12 to 14 months. You could probably, if we tightened our belts, probably make it last 18 months. But that was like based on our previous expenditure, 12 to 14 months, we could have survived without any money coming in. Yeah, you realize that nobody ever does that, right? (laughs) (laughs) We Like some people do it in their personal life. Some people do it. They have emergency funds. I think very few businesses of a small nature have a cash pile, have money put aside because of instances. But I didn't want... It killed my dad. That one recession killed his business. He didn't have anything to survive the next month. I'm sure you know the stats about the number of Americans that can survive without one month of pay. And I think it's like 43% of British people can't survive without one month of pay. I think the American one, the American one is like 70 or something. Yeah. It was a, a very scary kind of number. And and then when the pandemic shut everything down, one of the first things that everyone banned was in-person classes. So you guys were just shut down completely. How did the pandemic affect Pop-Up or Rebel Business School? Well, I think in the course of four days, quarter of a million dollars worth of business vanished. Every live event was cancelled. And that's how we made money. We only made money through live events. That was it. So all of our future income streams died overnight. And we were left there sitting there going, uh, how do we make money now? Uh, what are we going to do next? Uh And there were some interesting conversations about how do we survive? Do we have to let the team go? Do we just close down and regroup? Can we sell online stuff? That's when you start to look forwards and go, can we make money this way? And yeah, it was was challenging times for a month or two to work out what we could actually do. That sounds actually a really similar situation that happened to your dad, right? That was like, you came to the same crossroads and you made it and he didn't which is, I, I have to applaud that because a lot of businesses got really screwed over. I mean, like your entire thing relies on in-person classes. It's not like you can do like take out pop-up business school or something like that, right? So you would, <laughs> you would just like shut down. And if you had structured your finances the same way that your dad did, the same thing would have happened to you. You would have gone in, insolvent. We would have been wiped out. We did transition to online events and that was our savior, But it took us three or four months to get the first one over the line, transitioned and do it. And it was quite a tough journey. If we'd have only had one or two months savings, we would have gone bankrupt. We would have run out of money. We wouldn't have gone bankrupt because we just would have not had any money to pay anyone. We would have had to have closed down. We never would have gone under for debt, but 
yeah, the, that crossroad is the same thing. It's just, and actually, I think it happens to every business. There's always another recession coming. There's always another incident that will take down your customers. Like, there's always a problem coming around the corner. The question is, are you prepared for it? So, how did you end up doing? How did Rebel Business School end up doing? And did you guys make any money? Did you guys lose money after the pandemic? What ended up happening? So, in the pandemic year, we came out profitable. We didn't make wow. a huge profit, but we made a profit. We paid everyone's pensions, salaries. Like we made money in a pandemic year, we recovered. And then I think we're actually far stronger for it. Like the team seems stronger. We've released a whole range of new products. We feel stronger for it, but it doesn't mean it wasn't painful to go through it. It's just we had that confidence and that security blanket of a big stack of emergency fund cash. Yeah, you, you actually run your corporation kind of like the way that the fire movement kind of advises people to run their own personal lives, right? There's always a recession coming. I guess it's always that recency bias that makes people think that if the good times are, you know, if you're on fire, if, you're, if the good times are on, going to continue forever, you know, up and to the right. And people intellectually know that that's probably not going to happen, but they don't seem to really internalize it because they don't, I guess it's the fear that they're kind of missing uh, almost, where it's just like, I'll figure something out. I'm smart. I'm a genius. I'm a business savvy, whatever. And then something, because I, I don't think anyone doubts that your dad was a smart guy. But he still got slammed by a recession and he, and he lost everything, right? I don't think it's anything to do with intelligence. I think it's to do with how are you protecting the downside and how prepared you are. Because if you don't have that protection, if you haven't set your life up that way, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, you're going to get smashed by something at some stage. There's always something coming along to get you. That sounds really negative, isn't it? But <laughs> like, you'll never know what it is. You just need to set yourself up to give yourself the best chance to get over it. And if you have an emergency fund of three to six months, you've bought yourself three to six months to work out what to do to then be able to get over it and start again. And I think if you're smart, just have enough set aside to give yourself time. Because if you've got time, you can always come up with a plan. I sound like the A-team then for a second, don't I? Yeah, I love it. I love it. Because you're, 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 you're at the same time one of the most optimistic people I know, but you're not like stupidly optimistic. You're like, everything will be fine. Shut up. It'll be, everything will work out forever. Because, you know, there are entrepreneurs out there like that. I mean, like even the really, really successful ones, you know, like Elon Musk famously went bankrupt and was living in his car for a while, like at, at one point in his life, right? But you don't, you don't, you don't have that. You kind of combine the best of both worlds, which is really quite uh, amazing. Yeah, it seems like you want. You're you're saying it's not good to like never take a risk, but it's taking calculated risks that has gotten to you to where you are. I see it as choosing your risk. So at any given point, we can choose to risk time, energy, money. We can risk reputation. We can risk all these different things, but you don't have to risk them all and go all in. You don't have to like leverage the house for 500 grand, put all of your time and energy into it for a year, risk your entire reputation on this thing and like throw everything into it. You don't have to do that. You can choose to risk just some time. So I'm going to risk my time. I'm going to build a free website, put it out there and see if anyone buys. If they don't, I'll pretend it never happened and I'll have another go. If they do, then that risk paid off and I have a business. And then once I've got some customers, maybe I'll risk a bit of my money. But I'll never risk my money without knowing that I've got customers in a return at the other end. Right, right. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so I mean, you are now financially independent, correct? Yes. We crossed our magic number, which was one million pounds invested when I was Yay. just about 40 years old. Yay. Congratulations. <laughs> that's a, Thank that's you very amazing. much. 
<laughs> so why do you do this podcast? Because you don't, you know, you, you're, you're, you're set for life, right? I mean, like you don't need to do any of this. That's true. I don't need to do any of it. Why do I do it? Because fundamentally, I think that most entrepreneurship education is broken and teaches you to write business plans and teaches you to borrow money and go into debt and have startup loans. And I want to change that. I never want anyone to go through what I went through with my family ever, ever. So I want to do that. And selfishly, I look at what leads to happiness for me. And it is contribution and growth are the long-term things that lead to happiness. So am I contributing to people, family, friends, society? Am I giving? And am I growing? Am I learning? Am I getting better? Am I performing? Like, do I feel like I'm actually going somewhere? And if I feel like I'm growing, if I feel like I'm contributing and I'm all set, life feels good. So this podcast gives me that opportunity, like the coaching series. These amazing people come along and say, I want to start a business. And then they trust my advice. And over a series of like 12 episodes, I'm going, is my advice going to work? Are they actually <laughs> going to, are they going to sell anything? Um, and I'm learning with them and we're growing together and I'm contributing and they're building a business and everyone listening is able to feel that story and learn alongside us and happiness. The answer to your question in one word, why do I do this, Bryce, is happiness. I love that. I love that. And finally, I'd like to wrap back around to Captain America because everything has to, with Alan has to start and end with Marvel. Now, there's a, scene, <laughs> there's a scene in the first movie, Captain America, the first Avenger. In the first movie that I think encapsulates both of your, your characters. So Steve Rogers is in an alley behind a movie theater and he's being attacked by this bully who's like punching him and like this kind of stuff. He was like arguing in the movie theater or something like that. And every time this guy punches Steve Rogers, Steve falls down, but he just keeps getting up over and over again. And then the bully says, you just don't know when to give up, do you? And uh, do you remember what Steve says back to him? I could do this all day. That's it. Yeah. And you know what? That's Alan. If there's a bully out there, he's going to fight them. He's going to help you fight them. He's going to help all of the listeners fight him. And you know what? He can do this all goddamn day. <laughs> <laughs> and that is our interview. I just wanted to thank Alan for coming on his own podcast. Very, very generous <laughs> of you with your time and for being so open and talking about this. I know it couldn't have been, some of it couldn't have been easy. Some of it, I'm sure it was quite painful, but thank you for doing this. I think everyone has learned a lot more about you today. And thank you for inviting us on. It was a pleasure to be part of this. I love that. Christian Bryce, you are some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And I love hanging out with you. If the audience want to know more about your work in financial independence, where do they go? So you can find us on our blog, which is www.millennial-revolution.com. We also wrote a book with Penguin called Quit Like a Millionaire, uh, which teaches you how to become financially independent and travel the world like us. And I cannot recommend that book highly enough. Like if you have a spare 10 pounds and a couple of hours, buy Quit Like a Millionaire. It is a fantastic book. Christian Bryce, we do have different opinions on whether you should follow your passion first, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested in that, listen to the episode in season one where Christian Bryce and I discuss follow your passion first or second. It is fascinating. But read their book. They are two of the most smartest, well-written people I have ever met, and I cannot highly recommend them enough. They are awesome. On the podcast, we always like to have a closing action thought takeaway for people to do 
the people who generally listen to the podcast are people who have an idea, they want to build their own life, they want to build a business, they want to do something different, they want to create. So there's a lot of the financial independence world that listens to it as well. If you had a thought to take away, something that you really wanted to give people, what would you say to them? You're allowed one each as well, because I know you're individual human beings, not just <laughs> the millennials. Basically the same human being. What are you talking about? <laughs> We're just half of a regular, normal person. I'd say that the kind of lessons that we learned here on this podcast, which is about thinking not just about the upside, but the downside and coming up with a plan to survive. Because this recession was just awful. This was just awful. Zero out of five stars. Would not pandemic again. But the thing is... <laughs> And it really kind of showed who really has their financial situation together. And, and the answer it turned out is that a lot of people end up hurting a lot more than they thought. So, you know, now we're coming out of this recession, jobs are coming back, economy is opening back up again, and we might just survive this pandemic. Now's the time to start thinking about the next recession. What are you going to do? How are you going to plan for it? And how are you going to be prepared next time? And it might be, you know, building an emergency fund like Alan did. It might be learning how to invest, which is what we talk about on our blog. But what are you going to do and how are you going to survive the next recession? You don't have to have an answer right away, but now's the time to start thinking about it. I think my takeaway is digging into Alan's origin story. We have discovered the reason for the namesake of this podcast, which is Rebel Business School. So rebelling might scare some people, but as we've seen from Alan's story, if he didn't question that judge, the first one, he wouldn't have been able to get his family home back. So just because someone seems very authoritative and the bank is saying, you got to you know, borrow as much money as you can. And if you want to make money, you got to borrow money. That's not true. So follow Alan's lead and always question everything. Be a rebel because it actually pays to ask those questions. Don't be afraid. And on that note, Go out there and be a rebel. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.